let us draw near biblical worship and the warming of the soul. And the topic this morning, why, why wholeheartedness in worship isn't enough? Why wholeheartedness in worship isn't enough? 2 Samuel 6, I'm going to read a long text. Follow along. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him into Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. I'll give you a bit of a review, because this text ties right into where we left off, but that's two Sundays ago now. Verse 3, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord, with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets and cymbals. Must have been loud. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. It's going to fall. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died. He died there beside the ark of God. Doesn't seem right. Didn't seem right to David either. either. Look at verse 8. And David was angry. Because the Lord, this, this was the Lord who did this. Because the Lord had forth, burst forth against Uzzah and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. I'll talk about that. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went. Brought, the ark of, brought, the, brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. What you wouldn't get from that text, what actually happened is every six steps, stop, sacrifice, six more steps, stop, sacrifice. You see what's happening here? 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound and the horn, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. 
distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed to his house. 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Yikes. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord. He chose me above your father. David's got... He's making a point here, right? This is Saul's daughter saying this to him. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. What a text, Lord. So much to cover, so little time. Give us ears on our hearts. Help me and help all of us to hear your word with wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Strange passage, this one. It's like one of those funny mirrors at, at the circus. You know, nothing looks the way it's supposed to look. The lessons all seem kind of backward to our expectations. If there's ever a time when the word of God sort of feels like a sword, this is one of them. It kind of stabs our attention and cuts away a lot of our assumptions and misconceptions. No one gets the reaction we expect from God. That's the thing. David, dancing in worship, doesn't look very king-like. There's an impropriety to his actions. Worship is supposed to be dignified. I think we all know that. This doesn't look very reverent. And yet God, God seems pleased. That's weird. Michael instantly rushes in to protect the reverence of the king before the Lord. She doesn't hate God. She loves God. In fact, that's, that's what's going on here. She thinks David's raw emotionalism, this little binge of David's, that's unworthy of worshiping God. So good for Michael. This idea, by the way, that God is displeased with emotional worship, it's a very common assumption in the church today. We need people like Michael, don't we, to keep worship anchored in soundness and propriety and dignity. And then God judges Michael for her wicked words that come out of her mouth in judgment that is probably meant to picture more than just a lack of children her critical attitude leads to her, just her perpetual barrenness before the Lord the rest of her days. And then there's something else that bothers us a bit. Maybe most of all in this story, God seems pretty unfair to Uzzah. We all know that the main cause of offending God is the exercise of our 
wicked wills, uh, in rebellion to God, disobeying God. Rebellion is the root of all wickedness. God's wrath, Paul says, Romans 1.16, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Fair enough, so far so good. But then our text seems to record a different situation altogether. Uzzah isn't rebelling against God. He's trying to protect the ark. He isn't trying to dishonor God. He doesn't want the ark of God rolling around in the mud and the manure from the oxen. He's trying to protect the glory of the Lord. And yet God strikes him dead. So there's just so many things here that make you say, what in the world's going on in this text? But maybe, maybe we've gone a little bit too quickly. Maybe there are more details than we see at just first glance. Think back now. Think back, if you can, to two Sunday mornings ago. If you remember, Judah lost... Uh, an enormous battle with the Philistines. And then Judah concludes, it's because we didn't have the ark with us. Remember that? We didn't have the ark. That's what the problem is. Of course, that wasn't the reason for her defeat. The real problem, we looked at it, was the carelessness with regard to their worship. Under Eli, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the worship had become corrupt. The key people came before the Lord any old way they chose. The priests were selfish. They were disobedient. They ignored God's instructions and God punished them for it. And then Judah takes the ark into battle against the Philistines thinking this will bring victory. And she was miserably defeated. The glory of the Lord departed from Judah. And then, remember, the ark was this constant source of irritation. The Philistines captured the ark, took it back, and it was nothing but pain and trouble for them. And so finally, what the Philistines did is they put the ark on a cart, remember, with some oxen, and immediately the cart headed off to the border of Judah. The ark came to rest at the house of Abinadab. Nobody in Judah even missed it for 20 years. Until finally they hear that the ark is blessing the house of Abinadab. And now they're interested in the ark. Isn't, boy, is that a picture of human nature? So that's where today's text picks up. They're going to get the ark. And it's while the ark is being brought back by David that this whole story that I read to you with Uzzah, that's the context. Here are some, there are three lessons. I'm going to try and just do one this Sunday, maybe two next Sunday. Point number one. A passion for worship without an accompanying passion for knowledge is a dangerous thing. Why does Uzzah reach out to steady the ark? Well, Pastor Don, 
if no one's ever told you, don't ask dumb questions of a congregation Sunday morning. The text says why. When you look at 2 Samuel 6, 6, and 7, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Seems simple enough. The oxen stumbled. The cart was probably moving along and hit some kind of rut. These weren't, you know, paved 407 type roads. Hit a rut or a stone and Uzzah just couldn't bear, couldn't bear to see the ark of the Lord topple over into the mud. Why was the ark on a cart? God had given pretty specific instructions on how the ark was to be dealt with. You can look at it. Let me, it's a bit of a long passage. Look here. Numbers. Sorry. Numbers. Numbers 4, 15 to 20. I guess I labeled the slide wrong. My apologies. But we're going to start at verse 15, okay? Numbers 4, 15, ignore that. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after the sons of Korath shall come to carry these, here's the instructions given by God, but they must not touch the holy things, okay? I'm reading Numbers 4, 15, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Korath are to carry. And all the instructions that follow along. To carry. The ark was to be carried. It was never ever to be placed on a cart pulled by livestock. Does it really matter? I mean, how important can it be to transport the ark one way rather than another? As long as it gets from point A to point B. I mean, that seems to be the, the main point. And yet four times, four times, God warns if the ark is touched by human hands, it'll bring immediate death. Now, think back two weeks ago. Why, why would David put the ark of the Lord on a cart. What, what would have generated that idea in his mind? And I think there's only one answer. There's only one answer to that question. Abinadab probably told David, how did the ark reach the house of Abinadab? What was it sitting on? Cart. Remember the Philistines? Put the ark on a cart with the oxen and off they went. They stopped at the house of Abinadab. David's going to get the ark. How did it get here? Abinadab says, well, it just, I looked up one morning and this cart came with the ark sitting on it. Oh, okay, a cart. That's how the Philistines had sent the ark to the border of Judah. It seemed to work just fine. And so that's what David did. Listen. He followed the pattern 
that was passed on to him instead of the instructions from God's word. He followed the pattern passed on to him instead of the instructions from God's word. Remember, the point we're looking at is how passion worship without knowledge is a dangerous thing. Please don't make the mistake of thinking we're studying ancient history in this text. Here's the issue. Is sincerity in worship enough? Is all well just because we approach God with loving hearts? For that matter, is worship just a heart issue? The way many people think it is. Especially in the New Covenant. How important is knowledge when we approach God? How important is understanding? That's the issue here. It is, it is relatively easy, given a good worship leader and a good band, it is relatively easy to generate emotional sincerity in worship. By that I mean... It is relatively easy in a church like this. It is relatively easy to honestly, to get the idea that as long as I'm not raising my hands while I'm thinking about work, that would make me a hypocrite. But as long as in my worship time, I honestly feel like I love God. And I honestly think I feel like rejoicing in his presence. As long as there's emotional integrity, then that's good worship. And this text has a lot of teeth in it because Uzzah isn't reaching out to the ark because he doesn't think it's the right thing to do. He's reaching out to touch the ark because he believes it's the right thing to do, right? And, and his belief that it's the right thing to do, he's doing what ought to be done, that belief does not protect him because it's contrary to God's will and way. And I wonder how many people come into services all across Canada today who will honestly close their eyes, shed tears, raise their hands, and feel blessed by God, all the while ignoring areas of neglect or flat-out disobedience in other areas of life, and will think that it's compensated because they felt emotional integrity before the Lord in worship. Everybody get that? You feeling honestly blessed doesn't nullify areas of neglect and disobedience because it's not feeling blessed that cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. Worship can't cleanse you of sin. It's too bad Nobody has the chance to talk to Uzzah. How important is it that we approach God his way rather than ours? If you could ask Uzzah that today, he'd say, it's pretty important. Nobody was doing anything that looked bad 
as they sang and praised their way in joyous celebration in front of the ark. Nobody was thinking bad thoughts about God. Everybody loved God. Everybody was celebrating God's greatness and glory, except for Michael. No one had any ill intent of heart, and Uzzah ends up dead. At the hands of God. Now let me ask the question again. When we're considering worship, and our corporate approach to God. How important is it that we look into God's word and say, how, how are we supposed to worship? How important are God's instructions? How important is sound teaching and doctrine? How important are the, the instructions in the Bible given about what we do when we gather to worship the Lord? We're going to be studying we're going to be studying in depth what the Bible says about worship in the New Testament church. We'll do that for quite a few weeks. But why bother doing it? Why don't we just worship? Who needs all this study? Worship is just, worship's just about the heart, Pastor Don. Well, it's, it certainly should include your heart. It's never less than the heart, but it is more than just the heart. And I think the story about Uzzah is the Holy Spirit's way of putting two truths into our minds. A, enthusiasm by itself. Those are the important words. If I were underlining, I'd underline that. Enthusiasm by itself won't make God happy with our worship. I hope you know by now that I believe enthusiasm is, in worship is right and appropriate and required. You ever notice how your emotions are commanded by the Lord? It's strange, isn't it? Delight yourself in the Lord. It's not a suggestion. But it's talking about delight. How do you command delight? So that's, that's the Bible's way of saying just how important that emotive quality in worship is. You can't just be clinically right about God. Worship ought to be passionate. It's not enough that I don't cheat on my wife. I, I love my wife. There's, my emotions are engaged in that. We're the bride of Christ. But enthusiasm by itself won't make God happy with our worship. These people were enthusiastic. They were passionate. They were full of joy. And that wasn't their problem. God is never against passion in worship. I believe he requires it. But these people, while passionate, were careless. That's different. Uzzah teaches us that without due regard for instruction, enthusiasm can go off the rails. Enthusiasm can self-destruct. To obey is still better than sacrifice. And those famous words were spoken in the context of worship before the Lord. So here's the second lesson. I don't have to intend anything evil to dishonor God. That's the striking thing in this text. I don't have to intend anything evil to dishonor the Lord. Judah was guilty for what she was doing, even though she was probably unaware of her guilt. 
David and the people of Judah either forgot about the instructions carrying the ark, they either forgot about the instructions or never took the time to learn the instructions in the first place. Those seem to be the only two explanations. Because we know God did give clear instructions. The fact that David resented God's wrath is just so clear from the text. Right there. David was angry. David resented God's wrath. Perez Uzzah means break of Uzzah. Something disjointed, something severed, something not the way it's supposed to be. I hope you can see God's design in that telling term. There is great peril in marginalizing, marginalizing the importance of, of obedience and worship. This text tells me that it has to do with the making or breaking of lives. Perez Uzzah. This is what did Uzzah in. This is what finished him off. So this was dreadfully serious. No one on the scene seemed to understand why God acted the way he acted. Even David, the king after God's own heart. He can't get his head around this difficult event. But the problem isn't with God. The problem lay elsewhere. It's highly relevant to the careless attitudes people can form to learning about worship in the church today. Consider this. Consider this question. What was happening? So the ark, remember, you got to keep some of the details straight. Philistines sent the ark on a cart because it was causing them nothing but ulcers and sickness and disease and suffering. So they sent the ark away on the cart and it went to the house of Abinadab. Okay? And the text says it stayed at the house of Abinadab. Remember how long? 20 years. 20 years, the ark is at the house of Abinadab. Now, here's my question. What was happening in the minds of the people of Judah during those 20 years when the ark is over here at Abinadab's house? What was happening in the minds of Judah while the ark was missing for 20 years? I mean, God didn't make the people go and bring it back. He could have. There's no command. He didn't seem to punish the people for not showing his presence due regard. He, he didn't make the people give him any particular attention at all. It just stayed at Abinadab's house. 20 years. It's a long time. You can read 20 years in a second, but 20 years is 20 years. While the people were free to ignore the old covenant ark of the Lord, there was something else that was happening in those 20 years that was beyond their control. And here's what it is. God's instructions were slipping away from their awareness. 20 years. Just leave the ark where it is. The parents, and then the parents' children, 
were gradually training themselves to think about life without reference to the Ark of God, that old covenant symbol of his presence. They were training themselves to live without the presence of God. Gradually, 20 years, they got used to the ark not being there. Nobody was worried about the ark not being there. People weren't learning about God. And, and, and here's, here's, here's what I'm getting at. It takes no... It takes no effort at all, parents, it takes no effort at all to unlearn the things of God. Did everybody hear that? It takes no effort at all to unlearn the things of God. That's what happened in that 20-year stretch. Think about that as you tally up your faithfulness in coming to God's house. Do you slog around in the summer once every eight weeks to worship? And do you think that doesn't affect the blessing of God on your family? Think about it as you're plotting the future pattern of your children's worship lives. So yeah. These people were free to ignore God's instructions. They were free to worship according to their own whims, their own schedules, their own inclinations. God didn't check their homework to see if they were inclining their minds to his word. But there are consequences. There are consequences to ignoring God's instructions. There are always consequences to unlearning God's ways through carelessness and laziness and affluence. More Christians are ruined through affluence than through suffering. A thousand times more. I will fail the Lord without knowing I'm failing the Lord when you unlearn his ways. Sincerity will never be enough. I will still be accountable for my failure. I just don't know. I just won't know why my spiritual life is unraveling at the seams. I'll never figure it out. That's why it's with the deepest sense of meaning that Jesus said it's the truth that would set us free. It's not your emotions. It's not your sincerity. It's the truth. The greatest freedom is the freedom from blunder. The greatest freedom is freedom from judgment. And only the possession and application of the truth can do that, even in our pursuit of God. So do be passionate about your worship of God. Oh my goodness. Let that, let that passion arise from the cradle of truth in the depths of your heart. Let your mind warm your heart and fuel your worship. That's the correct order.